Welcome to our second season of Shooting the Breeze. This time, we're casting our net wider. We're going to be talking to inspiring athletes, amazing coaches, and behind-the-scenes trailblazers from across the women's basketball landscape. As we start the run-up to another WNBL season and the FIBA Women's World Cup being held right here in Sydney, this is a great time to be a fan of Australian women's basketball. Don't forget to subscribe and be the first to know when we have more Hoops goodness headed your way. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Today we have got a special show. We are going to be previewing the Gliders campaign at the Paralympics. Joining us today is Jenna Misens, New South Wales Institute of Sport wheelchair basketball head coach and also Gliders assistant coach. And as well, we've got Darren Alley, who has got 30 years experience of coaching in basketball, has joined the Gliders program in the last two years, starting as a development coach and moving into the assistant coach's role in 2020. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Yeah, great to be. So look, the first question I'd like to ask is, it's the Paralympics. How does Australia look in relation to the competition? Well, I think... um... Across the world, we're all in a crazy time right now. You know, we haven't seen uh, international games for a while. The last time our girls have played uh, against another team was in 2019 when we qualified for the Paralympics. And that's very exciting because in 2016, unfortunately, we didn't qualify. So this will be a great time for us to be back on the world stage. We're ranked ninth in, um, for Worlds in 2018. So we're a bit of an underdog right now to, to make a statement. Okay, and look, one of the things I noticed was uh, how tight the schedule for the team is. Yeah, yeah, I have to say, as an athlete, I used to play able-bodied basketball before playing wheelchair basketball, and that was a huge difference um, in the college scene that you'd get together and play eight games on a weekend, and you're like, what? <laughs> you know, able-bodied, you definitely, you know, you take a, a breather and, and get back to it a couple days later. So you're definitely correct, um, and especially for the gliders coming up this week, we have our first game on Wednesday night, and then it's quickly backed up early the next morning. And add on that travel things, it means that you're we need to be on a bus before 6 a.m. We probably won't get back from our night before till about 7 p.m. So it's a very tight turnaround. And I don't think it'll be anything that the girls won't be used to. They're, they're used to having tight schedules, as Jenna has said. So I think having a day break between games will be quite refreshing for a number of the girls compared to what they're currently used to. So... For people who haven't been exposed to wheelchair basketball, who are the teams to look out for? And from the gliders, who are the players to look out for? We had Worlds two years ago. Netherlands were at the top of that. It was Netherlands, GB, and Germany. But we also have uh, USA in there that were um, ranked number one in the last Paralympics. So there's a few um, countries. But I think, again, with the uh, situation globally there's been a lot of shifts around with athletes and coaches so anything can really happen um, for our um, athletes ourselves we have a very young team given we didn't qualify in 2016 we have a whole kind of generation there that would have had their first pairs then so we have two athletes that have been there before amber Merritt and sarah vinnie we also have another athlete that um, attend the games in 2012 however that was an equestrian so it's a very young team um, a new team to the whole excitement of the Paralympics. But what the athletes to watch out for, Amber, you know, Georgia Maroon-Cook, who's the captain. And yeah, there's a few, Jess Cronia. There's a number of us getting ready to, to go out there and play. 
I think the other thing too, Paul, is to, you know, a lot of these countries, because of the current situation that we're in, would have been affected. Their domestic competitions would have been affected. So you need to look at possibly what countries have been least affected and been able to play. This question for you, Jana, is the college system in the US. Was that still being played during the pandemic? Do you know? It had a little bit and it definitely affected, you know, not as much as as, as normal. Because, yeah, you're right that in the USA, there's a number of men's and women's um, university programs across, but they've been effective. A lot of their summer camps were usually bringing a lot of athletes to participate. That's all been online. So it's been really hard, everyone getting that game time. And we've seen recently, we just, just through some connections with some support staff that work in other countries around the world, some of the European teams have been playing games against each other. So we've seen that um, compared to what we've had access to, you know, which has been good for us. We've been lucky enough at least being able to have some some practice games against you know, our 23 men's team and, and stuff like that, which has been excellent for us, uh, which has really helped. Uh, and that's nothing. been the strategy. I think Japan girls as well played their under-23 men's and um, the USA played the under-23 men's. The under-23s were supposed to have their world championship this last year, and that was cancelled. So they're all, all the young men are ready to play, and it's been great for the national programs to compete against them. So the first game we're playing is against Japan, and backing up the next day against Germany. How do we look in those two games? Well, versus Japan, we played Japan for the qualifier. Um, Japan, like us, didn't qualify for Rio. So um, being their home home um, country, um, they'll probably be pretty excited with it. But it is a team that we probably have the most intel. We've had a lot of opportunity to shift up our game the last year and a half um, to, to play a way that the world hasn't seen yet. So we're really excited to test that. And then against Germany, Germany has been playing well. I mean, they have their traditional kind of big players out there. They've ranked, you know, two or three of the last four years. Um, they have had some um, different leadership changes, so we don't know how that will affect the team. And I think a lot of the the teams, um, it's really going to be what happens at the games. It's that current intel. Um, but for Japan, we're really looking forward to playing them because it's the one that we know the most. And I think another thing that we probably need to consider too, that there was a re- reclassification process that went through over the last two years, Jenna, to where athletes were reclassified. And a number of athletes have come off team rosters across the country, as did they come off ours as well. So it'll be the impact of that as well and how that affects different teams that we're playing. Yeah, so, so that's a big one. So in terms of um, wheelchair basketball, everyone's classified, you know, and everyone that attends the Paralympics has a disability. And what happened a couple of years ago that Darren mentioned that everyone needed to fit into these eight categorizations from the International Paralympic Committee. So it was all redone. Wheelchair basketball, there's had a minimal disability. So if you're not able to twist, to pivot, do different things of that, you kind of, you work to fall into wheelchair basketball. How to bring in your medical documents, things of that. And they would be classed as a 4.5. And somebody who's a paraplegic, maybe a higher disability is a class one. And from a four and a half to one, two, five players out in the court equal 14 points. So that's all been kind of shifted around. And unfortunately, with the new, everyone needed to be reclassified, everyone to fit into these categories. And unfortunately, I think it's about 10 people globally were declassified, unable to play internationally. So they still play domestically okay, but not represent their country. For us with the gliders, that meant we lost two of our athletes who had a lot of minutes at the qualifiers. So our team has definitely shifted. We lost two of our great players. So let me ask a question about that. The IWBF 
and the Paralympic Committee, are they on the same page, for want of a better word, in terms of classification or are there differences between the two bodies? There's differences between the two bodies. And so, I mean, they're working together to sort it out and figure it out, but it's all needs to come under the same body. So I think there has been a bit of a struggle to figure out what does that classification mean. We'll have some new, at the end of this year, that's proposed everybody's getting classified again to tighten it up more, clarify it. But the thing is, it's really hard to take every type of disability globally and to chuck it into eight categories, you know? And I think they're struggling, both are they're trying to make that happen. And with that comes the complexity of different people having a degenerative condition. So one year they might be a 4.5 and then in two years' time they may be a 3.5 and the nuances around that, it's very complex. It's, yeah, it's very hard from a coaching perspective to forecast where your athletes could be and different combinations you may have. Okay. Now, one of the other questions that came up for me in in relation to wheelchair basketball and certainly something that was mentioned when we spoke with Lee Gooding earlier this year, the number of players who make up the available pool is quite small in the women's competition. How is that impacting the preparations for the Paralympics? Yeah, I think, I mean, I have somebody who come from the United States where we have a lot more players and we have a lot more state. Um, there's a lot more systems to get involved in the sport. But saying that, it's everybody needs to kind of, you kind of, you find out about the game. You know, I volunteered at the 96 games in Atlanta and that's how I found out that I was classifiable. And I think all of us that participate kind of has that story of someone sharing, hey, you could do this. And we're like, oh, really? This is amazing. Let me give it a go. It's getting the word out that there is even this game um, and then finding people that are classifiable, you know, but it's more just getting the game out there, trying to find some state organizations that not every basketball association has a wheelchair basketball program. So even if you're keen on the game, it's not available for you. And it's trying to, if you have to come into Metro, come to Sydney, go to different places to participate. And there's some great organizations promoting it, but it's really hard to tap into it. And then once you tap into it, how do you get to a great place where you can train every day? I was very fortunate myself when I found out about it, I was able to straight go to university. So I'm training every single day, every morning, you know, and so my learning curve and being able to play basketball and then to represent my country two years later was because we have those infrastructures in place and things here in Australia, they're coming our New South Wales Institute of Sports, um, WACE, QAS, Victoria Institute of Sports, a lot of great um, investments and putting in to create those opportunities but there's limited associations. We have our National Women's Wheelchair Basketball League and our Men's League, but we're missing that second tier down. And so you have our national programs that are our national tournaments that are trying to combine professional high level and also your community side of it. And it gets a bit blurred. Um, it makes it hard for those to kind of go further in the game. And then those, it's kind of mixing too many objectives. I think one of the things that we obviously going forward with Brisbane coming up is that, you know, what happened when we had the Olympics in Sydney and the Paralympics in Sydney back in 2000 was there was a massive push and there was massive advocacy and exposure into sport and the funding that supported the talent identification. People were going across the country and just running talent ID camps to say, well, what skill sets do you have? And saying, you would be good for rowing, you would be good for athletics, you would be good for gymnastics. Now, that approach that we had back then, will we do something similar coming into Brisbane? That could really help you know, the exposure to the game because at the moment there's a number of wheelchair sports that we currently have in Australia and it's sometimes 
there's not much talking between the two. So say, for example, there's a wheelchair rugby, female wheelchair rugby athletes that may not be in the top 15 or the top 20 for their group. Why can't we tap into what's not? Because we don't have as many in our program that may have a skill set to fit into our game. We probably need to look at some bit of cross-collaboration with different sports as well um, to tap in and broaden our pool because our pool is very thin. If we look at our depth chart for wheelchair women's basketball, it's very short. So one of the things that's a positive is that Channel 7 will be showing the Paralympics this time through from Tokyo. How do you see that that could have a positive impact on the number of people who find out about the sport and get involved in the sport? Yeah, I have um, the honour of being the head coach for the under-25s. And we had our first camp back in May and brought in about 16 girls across the country. And it was at the same time that the gliders were running a national camp as well. And so we um, were able to, in the evenings, um, you know, first they looked at offense. So my girls were there watching the gliders and watching their offense. And they were just in awe and just goosebumps that this is the first time some of those girls have seen a full women's team playing and for them to be there and going, wow, here's somebody who looks like me and identify and they're playing this amazing game that hopefully that channel seven is going to be showing them. A lot of those girls across the country can kind of look at, see our gliders as role models and see that, wow, they can represent their country, even though they have all the different type of disabilities they've overcome. And it's powerful to be able to see um, somebody that's like you representing your country. So I think it's going to be very exciting. And I think for Channel 7 to provide it or through um, live um, on the television or through their app, just having that access um, for girls across the country to watch would be fantastic. It seems to me that this is a really good run-up also for the upcoming Women's World Cup next year being held in Sydney. I am aware that there's been discussions about having some wheelchair representation at the World Cup. Is this one of those triggering opportunities to be able to try and not only get people involved, but also having a really short run-up towards national competition, be able to build up the excitement to get more people into the sport? I think um, promoting basketball anywhere is going to get more people involved. I think there is right before the um, women's world is the Commonwealth. And this year we had the first time that three-on-three wheelchair basketball is going to be showcased in it. So um, another opportunity, every time that we can get together and to bring in teams to play basketball is more exposure for other people to find out about it. And a great thing about a lot of the national programs here that able body can hop into basketball chair. Um, a lot of the wheelchair sports in South Wales or up in Queensland have days that you can bring your mom, bring a sister, a brother who can come and participate with you. And and being somebody um, with a disability, it's great to be and bring your family and somebody else that can participate with you in the sport. And anytime, I think those are maybe the things that the women's world's coming up that anybody can hop over chairs there available to try it, to do some three-on-three, along with bringing in the the high-performance teams and players. That's an interesting point you brought up about three-on-three being introduced in the Commonwealth. One of the things that I'm sure that other people as well don't don't fully understand, because I certainly don't, is in relation to playing the game itself in a wheelchair. There's things that most basketball players get taught to do that you just can't do in a chair. What are those sorts of differences so that, you know, anybody listening into the, to the podcast who hasn't really seen wheelchair basketball can get an understanding of what to look for during the game? The, for one, the 
wheelchair itself is an extension of your body. So just the same thing when you're playing defense on able body that you put your hand out and you kind of check to make sure your, your player's there, hold their shorts or whatever. You're kind of feeling them with your chair. Um, it's going to be louder because you can't really hear a hand on a thigh, but you can hear a wheel to another wheel and it's going to be kind of loud and you can hear the clanging and chairs kind of hitting each other. But the biggest thing, being in a wheelchair, you don't have that lateral movement. So um, you are going to have to do, your pivots are different. You know, you want to get your wheel position between your opponent and the basket. So it looks different. On the five-on-five game, the biggest thing, you really work that numbers advantage. So if you can get on a five-on-five offensively, you're trying to, you want to get your opponents behind you because then you create five-on-three and it's much easier to pass the ball around. Everything, the height's the same. Your passes are going to be possibly a little bit different because you're in that wheelchair. So you're able to physically have a further distance from your opponent. So you might have some more hook passes, which isn't a pass that's hook shot, but it's not really a pass used in able body basketball. There's the part of just because that lateral movement, you're not going to have somebody going from a baseline right side and go through the key to the other side. That movement in able body kind of happens. Your movement in wheelchair basketball is going through the point crossing moving from the outside of the key because once you're in the key that's three seconds but it, it gets clogged up so your shifting of the ball and moving around is going to be different in wheelchair basketball jenna can you explain the fouling when i first came across from able body the use of the chair and what you can and can't do with the chair in regards to fouling because that was so hard to understand it was like all right now you can't ram it with the front of your chair all these different things so if yeah. you could expand a little bit more on that that would be great yeah. yeah, we were talking about this the other day about the charge circle. You need to be in control. On offense, you need to be in control of your chair the whole time. So if you're going full court side to side, you need to stop your chair. And so if somebody gets wheel position, and wheel position is the big wheel gets in front of the small wheel. At that, So there's front casters, there's the big wheels, and then there's a fifth and sixth wheel in the back just to create stability. So it's making sure that axle, who breaks that line, that axle's in front, then that's going to be a charge from the offense. And understanding, you can't push your chair into it. You can hold. You can't hold with your foot plates. Then we think the wheel, it's all about wheel position and understanding where your hub, the middle of your chair is, is in front of the axle of the other person. So if you turn in and you break that line from a defensive side, that's going to be a charge or an offensive charge on the other side. And so strategically, you want to make sure you never get caught up on someone's wheel because defense it's about stopping that momentum offense is about creating momentum you never want to have your chair fully stopped so that you can move around but defense you want to stop that chair and you want to stop it with the big part of your your wheel and i think that's a really good point that jenna brings up about momentum when you watch the good players and the good teams out there and when you're watching during the paralympics is you'll see there's constant moving and the good players don't get caught they don't get locked up and you, you'll be able to notice it very easily when you're watching the games. And I think the other thing to add to that was um, how the classifications, you know, someone who, who may be a class one compared to a class four or five, you know, you'll see the, the role changes that they have on the court. So, for example, just talking from Able Body, that, you know, there's a lot of stuff in Able Body with screening where the bigs screen the littles to the guard so they can come off the on-ball and exploit it in the able body game. You will notice when you watch a wheelchair game that all the littles do all the screenings. Their role is to get the high pointers open uh, the best way possible and understand their role. Do you want to spend a little bit more on that, Jenna? Yeah, so 
and you might you might have a six footer, you know, someone who's really tall who's a class one, and so their chair is going to be set up differently. And when you watch the game, you'll notice some chairs are nice and flat. The high pointers are four, four and a half, even three and a half. So they're going to be a flat seat. But somebody who's a lower class will have a bit of dump. So the dump is they get further down to have a more balance in their chair. They might have a massive wingspan, but they're going to be sitting a bit lower. And so they'll have more balance because if you're up top and you flop over and move around and can't push, you're ineffective. So the lower ones with more disabilities are going to be lower in their chair for balance reasons. And it really is. So you'll have a lineup out there. You might have two, four, fives. You add that up to nine, two class ones, 10, 11, and then say a, that's a nine, 10, 11, and then a three out there. Someone who's holding the, um, handling the ball at the top. And you'll have your two bigs and a little a big and a little on either side working a two-man game. And it really is being able to get the big inside and understand when somebody's at a wheel position, where are their hands, what's going on. And what will happen is a lot of defense might play two on the big, and then you have the smaller class who can then set a pick, get their wheel position, and then the big will follow them in and lead into a pick and roll. So if it's it's a bit different that um, that crossing and getting somebody out, it's a numbers advantage again, trying to get somebody out and so that you're inside. And a lot of times the lower classes may not be able to um, shoot as well. And so defense won't pay attention to them. But what they are, they get the bigs in by their wheel position on their opponents. But it's still really important. I think everyone's a shooter and a ball handler out there. But that's something very different is with the lower classes working together with the bigs. Um, to get inside the key for the easy buckets. And this this is the beauty of the game where when I come across from the Able Potty game, that first camp that I went to, the national team camp, I was brain dead for the next two weeks. I'd learned so much. The game is so complex. And even though it is basketball, the, how the game is executed and played and the, and the considerations that you have to think about as a coach um, about different athletes, classifications, skill sets, rules, and how to exploit those rules and there's so much to understand. So one of the questions that, that's come up for me while I was listening to that is, Jenny, you were kind of adding up points as you were going through that discussion. And I'm inferring <laughs> from that that not only do you have five players on the court, but they've also got to stay, I'm assuming, below a certain point score. Is that correct? That's right. So it's 14 points. And so it's not just one out for one in, unless they're the same classification. It's pulling you know, a, a someone who's class two and a class three, that's five points, and then chuck in a four and a one. But a two and a three might be shorter. They might be quicker in their chair and add some speed, but then that's the height that you're giving up if you have a four and a one. So you're running a number of combinations. Now, if something messed up and the, and the team goes in there and it's over points, it's a technical on the bench. So um, it's definitely very important to know your numbers and your combinations to... It's kind of a chess game too. Like if the other team puts in a two and a half, two, two and a halves, and you want to shift it up, getting those um, subs in and out. The bench are keeping an eye on that. So as you sub in, they've, they've got a list of the names and the classifications. And so they're keeping an eye on what the count is on the court. So does this mean that the roles for the coach and the assistant coaches is sort of a little bit different? Because you know, you've got to keep track of the point score. You've got to keep track of what's happening on the court. You've got to be able to keep track of also what's happening in terms of subs from the, the other side that you may need to match up against. How does that change the whole approach to coaching? There's definitely massive considerations in regards to, so say, for example, 
you know, over the last year in the gliders program, we lost two 4.5s, Jenna, um, out of the program when they, the reclassification. And we've also got two mid-pointers that aren't at the games at Tokyo. So we're going with like a high number of low pointers. So there'll be, we've got five one-pointers in our group, you know, which would be pretty rare, Jenna, in other yeah. teams. Yeah, you that is pretty heavy on it because we're missing some of the mids and we're taking just three, four, three, four, four and a halves. Um, and you're right, we're missing two mid-pointers due to personal reasons we're able to uh, attend the games. So it's all a bit messy. So we have a lot of class ones, which is fantastic. I mean, there's in our class ones vary across what their capabilities are. We're going to potentially play under points. Any talk, an injury happen, injury happens, or fouls happen, and add those all complexity into it. And if you don't have any more fours or any more bigs to put out there, or it's not your best combination, it's going to uh, get difficult. Or even so, COVID. there's a lot more to think about. So even, COVID, even, you're right. We were looking at room allocations before we went because if we were to put two high pointers in the same room and one player was a close contact and the whole room had to isolate while we were in Tokyo, we would lose two of our high pointers. So we had to look at who we roomed together just in case as a risk management strategy. Right? So there's all these considerations to think about. So really when you say it, it, it's like chess, you're actually not too far off that because there's just so much strategy. But the point you brought up about COVID was interesting. I'm assuming that the impacts that we've had with from COVID in terms of availability of players and so on would have more than likely affected other countries as well. So does that mean that teams that you might have been looking at and saying, hey, they're the definite favourites may actually sort of even up the competition a bit? I think that's true. And I think a lot of our scouting is going to be on the ground, you know, because we don't know what's going to happen. I know different coaching staff. Like I mentioned before, the head coach from GB was an American. And when this kind of stuff happened, he headed back. So there's been a lot of changes with athletes, from athletes and coaches, and I'm not sure what it's going to look like. But, you know, I think overall, athletes are looking strong. That home-based program, you're still able to lift weights. You're still able to throw medicine ball. So I think individually, athletes are looking really good. It's just pulling that together with time on the court. And possibly the teams that are maybe more senior um, that have had a long time together might do better in this competition versus those trying to put some new things together. But we'll kind of see. It's all roll the dice and let's see yeah, what happens, you know. Definitely. But everyone most certainly is so excited to be playing basketball again. With the Paralympics, being on TV, being, you know, very front of mind, I suppose the one upside of the current COVID situation we have in Australia is it is giving people more opportunity to watch the Paralympic Games than normally would. How do you think that this is going to help the Paralympics and wheelchair sports specifically over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, the kind of a saving grace of lockdown has been the Olympics, wasn't it? And now we get to get back into it with the Paralympics and allow people to kind of uh, see there's amazing sports to be watching over the next couple of weeks. I think... It, it, this is great. It's just people being able to watch it. And we have time now, so much time on our hands and, and great for the kids right now, leading into Brisbane 11 years from now. There's so many, hopefully, kids right now in their teens, you know, 8, 9, 10, that they'll be prime ready to um, get involved in the game. So having Access Channel 7 showing all the games and inspiring and getting people um, pumped to possibly um, ask the questions and get out there and participate, good things are going to happen. 
think that the key will be what we do after this. So once the Paralympics finish, it's going to be, well, what are we going to do as an organisation to get out there and, and strike why the iron's hot? There's interest out there. People have been exposed. We need to get out in the community and start targeting those people and giving opportunities for people to be exposed to the game and try the game. There's a piece of the puzzle there that we need to look at it from a um, basketball Australia point of view and, and look at really promoting it and then keeping that into the fact that there is the World Championships for the able body and we also, too, we've got the World Championships as well for us next year as well. If we can keep that while people are still fresh in the mind, that would be good. And as you mentioned, Brisbane is actually not that far away. When you're looking at the longer-term development of a um, national team, really 11 years isn't that long because you'd be wanting to start developing that team effectively over the next couple of years so that there's the potential for the team to play together for a period of time and get used to each other and be able to start working as a unit as they approach such a big event. And also to that too is also looking at your current athletes in your program. And we've got some older athletes now that they may call it quits after this campaign. We could lose a number of athletes out of the group from a very small pool, which makes it hard to replace. As Janice said earlier, she's the leader of, of, of the 25s, the Devils program, and it's a very rural group that first time we had coming in. So we've got to really promote the game and get more people exposed to it. Look, this does bring up a couple of questions for me in relation to funding and support. What sort of commercial support do disabled sports get? I think yes, that question to Lee Gooding that we just don't have commercial support at this stage. You know, at the National League, maybe possibly some of the men might have some through like, you know, the war down at Wollongong. It isn't something that's been explored. As a whole, as a group, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that. Some athletes may have individual sponsorship agreements. Yeah, as a collective with the corporate support, I think especially after uh, these next three weeks, we need to be all over it. Uh, from an organisational point of view, looking at opportunities to tap in to get some long-term yeah, corporate financial support. Because traditionally you know, in, in Australia, sporting organisational funding has been based on your performance at Olympic Games. If you're having a restructuring, you know, it just happened to be a restructuring year where you've got a young group and you don't perform, that could hurt your funding. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You don't go well, you don't get more money, you can't put the resources in, yeah, we need to look at other avenues of funding to make sure there's consistent approach over a long, longer period of time. I think the institutions, though, uh, I know WACE, they have a full-time program there, and there's a number of athletes over there. That's been a great development, that it's helping our game overall. And Swiss, as the head coach now, but plans to extend that to be full-time. So from a high level, we have the high performance level, their support, but we still need that grassroots component to help bring up the athletes that come to us. So we're getting some great stuff happening at the pointy end, but we really need um, some more promotion and um, systems put in so that we can get those grassroots levels so that the pool overall can be bigger instead of the short list that we have. What's the best way to get people involved in the sport? I guess the state league. I, there, there's number one. So are you... Um, a participant that has somebody who has a disability and is looking to participate. Um, each state has their kind of wheelchair sports programs that allow come try days that you can come try wheelchair basketball. 
Uh, I know Paralympic Australia also has the number come try multiple sports that they're putting out there to help with talent ID. So if you're a player that wants to do that, also if you're a support person to that player, there's also opportunities to get involved with coaching um, or a class. If you're a referee, to come across to learn about wheelchair basketball refereeing or those classifiers to get involved in the whole classification system, as many classifiers to classify athletes domestically and internationally. So the first part would be reach out to your um, wheelchair sports organizations or then the basketball state level, like Basketball New South Wales is starting a Waratah League. So get involved with associations to play wheelchair basketball that's able-bodied as well or um, with the disability. And I guess it's just reaching out to the to different organizations. And the state bodies, for example, sporting wheelies in Queensland and, you know, whether it be disability sports or wheelchair sports in different, depending on which state, they have a different name. They will have the information that you need to get into and they, they'll normally have a calendar of what's coming up, you know, with these come try days and different things like that. I think one of the biggest things from our point of view is the difference between you don't have to be in a wheelchair to play wheelchair basketball. It's that in-between athletes that we're, we're not capturing at the moment because they may not know if they're eligible. So we need to do an education piece on that, get around to schools. If, you know, if, if someone has an injury that's affecting their mobility, well, what is that injury and how can we get it assessed? And is it classifiable from a wheelchair basketball point of view? There's a number of people out there that think, oh, well, you know, they may think, oh, I don't have a disability but you may have a condition that may be able to give you an opportunity to play wheelchair basketball. Would you say, Jenna, that's the cohort that we miss because there's a miss, lot of misunderstanding there? Yeah, I mean, so talk about like if you have a fused ankle, you know, or if you've had different um, metal work put into your leg, you know, with cancers or different things come out there, possibly still identified as, as an able-bodied person and still can move around. You know, I'm somebody who's ambulatory. I can walk around, but I have no lateral movement. I, I can't do that. I staph infection that ate up my bone and my knee. Um, so I, I look athletic, but I can't move around. And so sometimes it's the that stigma that I want to still be able-bodied that might prevent people to get in a wheelchair and try. And I, the first time I got in a wheelchair, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can move. I have freedom. I can I can feel and I can play a game without being in pain. And it's amazing to play basketball and do all behind-the-back passes and all the fun stuff that you can do without – my legs um, being compromised. So you're right, hitting that point of just giving it a try for fun, um, your disability, it's a, it's, that's, that's a tricky one of not wanting to identify as somebody who's disabled, even though you are. But also to reach out for those, if there's any girls out there being head coach at the under 25, so this year we have Worlds in 2023. And so this year is just about laying the foundation we have a camp at the end of the year and anybody who's interested that first camp, I was still sorting out sports chairs for the girls coming into the camp. So it's just that first interest. And then I can go ahead and teach them up all the different foundation, technical stuff, mechanics of wheelchair basketball, but it's really just getting that interest. So if there's any girls out there, some 15 years up to 20 who want to give it a go, most definitely look on the BA website and reach out. And we're also putting together uh, a women's development, probably about that same time at the end of the year, is anybody older who just wants to give it a go. It's going to be held down at the AIS, which is fantastic. Come and we'll have the coaches be there about really promoting the game of wheelchair basketball. You don't have to have a chair. We can figure that out. That's a lot of questions, you know, about 
what kind of chair, but we have that technical expertise. It's just about the willingness to give it a go is what we need is for, you know, girls and women to come out there and, and give it a go and we can teach them the rest. You just brought up a point. I suppose I, I did hear it, but it didn't actually, the penny didn't quite drop. You were talking about the different types of chairs. What's the difference between chairs used in the sport? A big thing, uh, your, your able-bodied chair, sorry, your everyday chair, you're going to have it a certain width. Um, your wheels are going to be straight, upright, so that you can get into cubicles to go to the toilet, you know, get through doorways. You're going to be just your two front wheels in the front, and then your side wheels. You're not having any wheels out back, so you can do wheelies to get up and down curbs and just move around in everyday kind of stuff. Whereas your wheelchair, a sports chair, and then one that's wheelchair based, that looks a bit different than tennis, but kind of similar, more so than a track chair. It's going to be the wheels are tilted, you know, so that you can spin on a dime a bit quicker. You're going to have your two support wheels back in the fifth and sixth wheels. What that allows is you to shift your axle further back so you can spin a bit easier. These chairs can't get through a toilet. They, they sometimes can't get through a door. You have to take off a wheel to squeeze it through a door when you go to the courts. So they are a bit wider. Your, your width that you're sitting is going to be similar. I mean, 14 inch was my width. You're going to, that's all going to be individually made. These chairs are about $10,000 that they're individually, your height, your, your length of your um, seat so that your foot, your foot plate, everything is all specialized. All your different straps are specialized. Um, it's about coming one with the chair. You're going to have straps around your hips, right about your stomach. What else? Your size of your wheel may vary. That's just going to be based on your arm length, how high it's going to be um, and, and your spin on it. So you might be 24 inches, same as a bike tube. So everybody's pretty used to changing their tires on the on the side of the court or thing like that, just with the a tube. What else? So, but it's very varies. So like new athletes, you might um, how high is your backrest might vary depending on where you're moving around in your chair. You might have a higher backrest if you're class one. About that balance, that stability, um, and you're going to depending on where your injury level is. I think of what else is different on the chair, but it's all individually. So when you first get in a chair, the chairs that are all adjustable so that you can lower your drop in your chair, you can lift your foot plate, you can lower your foot plate. It's an adjustable chairs that a number of the companies have. And then when you get more serious with you've adjusted where you want to be, that's when it comes all that it's all put together and hopefully doesn't break. Following on from that, do they have limitations on the types of materials the chairs can be made from? I mean, gosh, I... It's been a little while since I, and I, when I, from 2000, my 2000 chair was more aluminum and it was really heavy. I ended up to always would take two chairs with me because it was really hard in Mexico City to find out somebody could solder it back together, you know? So I'd have two chairs in case it gets cracked and the axle gets snapped. From 2004, my chair was titanium. So the big difference, it wasn't as, as heavy. It's much lighter and easier to move, but then it's also easier to get pushed around. So now the chairs are all made with titanium, so they're a stronger metal. And also a big shift from then, there was just your spokes, like your bike or spokes, um, and it shifted to spinergies, which is a the cable, which is the tire itself, the wheel itself is a stronger, and it stays true. I mean, back in the day, you'd get a couple spokes, get broke here, there, and then it gets out of true, and you're trying to tune it, and this and that, sort of hard to do that. So nice, the spinergy wheels itself is much stronger. Yeah, straps have changed over the years about how you strap your chair to be nice and strong. 
but different things can break. So it's always important, you know, everyone brings, um, everyone's a mechanic. So everybody just like, if you have a bicycle, you have um, your Allen keys, every, you have a tool for every part of your chair so that you can fix it. Everyone travels with a, a wheel bag. So they'll have two to four spare wheels that they'll switch around um, during the game. If something happens, you have spare axles. Yeah, that's, so it's a bit more a, than just basketball. That's a photo that we'll try and get to you, Paul, is a photo of one of the girls taking all their gear from the airport. That's a logistical nightmare. They're pushing their day chair. They're pushing their playing chair with like a, a big double playing gear bag, a wheelchair bag on top of the playing chair. Yeah, I was going to say this is – this isn't just, okay, let's get off a plane and go. It's actually, like you said, it's a logistical nightmare. You're going to have a full roster of players with all of this equipment. It's a big exercise to make sure that everybody has all the right equipment and also that everything gets off the plane intact as well. You get off the plane, you have to go down to the you know, the oversized baggage, get all the chairs out, then you've got to go out and you've got to have a bus that has wheelchair access with a trailer so you can throw all the other gear and the, and the chairs in the back of the trailer, and then you think then you've got to come to a place that, you know that that's wheelchair accessible, which not every hotel are great at at times. So you could have one chairlift going up, and you've got thirteen athletes waiting for one person to go up in a chairlift just to get to reception. Like you know, it's not one of these things where you can say, "Right here, everyone meet down." We've got an eight o'clock game in the morning. Everyone meet down at half past seven to leave at quarter to seven to go to your game. It's a it's a three hour process. I'm stunned at at how much. I mean, the team manager has to be across so many additional things that what they would normally have to with able bodied basketball. It really makes you appreciate. It certainly makes me appreciate the effort and, and the commitment that goes into performing at, at a international level in wheelchair sports. It was a massive eye opener for me. Not just the first camp that I went to, then the first the first trip away with the group and I was thinking, you know, all the considerations that need to go in place to make things work efficiently and the different scenarios. Yeah. But there's the part that you're kind of, uh, when you, you're always looking out for your teammates, you know, with the athletes, you're making sure it's usually times the four, four and a half. So are the ones that are putting all the chairs together. So we're like, all right, make sure everybody wheels labeled because a lot of wheels look the same. Make sure everything's labeled so that we can unpack the car. We can load it up just as a team. There's different things that, um, you know, people do and everyone kind of puts a hand up and helps out here, there and, and makes it work. And it sort of just is what it is um, for a lot of the the athletes playing and stuff. This is just, just what it is. And you'd make it happen. And so you can go play your sport. Okay. Well, Jana, Daz, thanks very much for your time. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you guys after the first two games against Japan and Germany. And we do a review of the, of those games and, and how the team's performing and a bit of a preview of the following two games. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Paul. Look thanks, to Paul. It. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.